exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. It is a joy to be with you all tonight. I almost said this morning, just, but it is a joy to be with you all tonight. And as you are getting your Bibles, I want you to turn to Philippians. We'll be in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. 12 through 18. I had originally written down 20, but that was a mistake. I really won't just end at verse 18 for our time together tonight. And I've titled this sermon, The Joy of Gospel Advancement. The Joy of Gospel Advancement. What I want us to think about in Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 18 is Paul's joy in gospel advancement. Paul's joy in gospel advancement. So if you're not there yet, we'll be in Philippians 1, 12 through 18. And we'll begin reading there. God says through the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Philippians is known as a letter of joy. Paul talks about joy numerous times throughout this whole letter, throughout this whole epistle. But in this particular section of Philippians 1, 12-18, as I've already stated, I really want us to think about Paul's joy and gospel advancement. Paul's joy and gospel advancement. And if you're taking notes... My outline for my text is very simple. First, I want you to look at the first three verses, 12 through 14. 
And I want you to see the spread of the gospel through Paul's afflictions. The spread of the gospel through Paul's afflictions. Then in the remainder, 15 through 18, I want you to see the two evangelists, the contrast between the two evangelists that are proclaiming the gospel. The two evangelists that are proclaiming the gospel. So, would you bow with me in prayer as we begin this preaching? Father, I pray and ask that the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, as well as the singing that happens tonight, would all glorify you. And that this text through the preaching would become just a dear text of Scripture to this congregation. And I pray that when we come out of this service tonight, that we would be more conformed to the image of your Son, that we would cherish your gospel more, and that we would seek to proclaim the gospel. And it's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Paul begins in this section of Scripture saying that the gospel has advanced. But even in a congregation like this, I don't want to assume that anybody here knows the gospel. So you could really put this as an overarching point to the two points I gave you in the text. The gospel is this. God is holy. God is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. He is righteous. There is none like Him. In His divinity of Him being in essence, the only God, He is the uncreated Creator. And He knows no wrong. He knows no unrighteousness. And the issue is, ever since our father Adam sinned, you and I are born sinners. You and I, we have never known anything but sin. So, for example, if we were to take God's given law on Mount Sinai, just the Ten Commandments, there's a lot more than the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. But even if we were to take just those Ten Commandments and go down the list, you would find that you've broken every one of those laws. If you do not believe me, take, for example, God's law of theft. God says... Do not steal. Have you ever stolen something in the 21st century? Even downloaded music illegally? Although LimeWire doesn't really exist anymore. But I remember when I was in high school, I used LimeWire and downloaded music illegally. Even that's theft. Even stealing a piece of gum or a pencil when you were young in the town supermarket. God holds you accountable for even that small theft of thievery. You've broken 
God's law that says in the old King James, Thou shalt not steal. So by nature, dear saints, you in and of yourself, you are a thief. And you have to admit that if you're being honest. You've stolen. Honor thy mother and thy father in the old King James. I don't know any person breathing that hasn't disobeyed their parents or their legal guardian or those put in authority over them when they were younger. We haven't given honor as honor is due. And God's Word says that if you've broken one of His laws, His standard because of His very holiness is so great that you have broken every law. It's at least as though you've broken every law. Because God says, be perfect. Peter says that in his epistles. Be perfect. The Old Testament lays out that as a standard. Because we are fallen, we need to either be perfect in our law-keeping, or we are doomed. That said, it is hopeless for each one of us. Romans chapter 3, quoting the psalm, says, No one is righteous, no, not one. And Paul goes through from Romans 1 all the way through the first part of 4 to basically argue that no human being is exempt. No human being born under Adam is exempt. We have all sinned. We all deserve the penalty for sin, which is hell. Burning under God's wrath for all of eternity. Because He really is that holy and His demands really are that great. And He has the right to make them that great, dear ones. Because He is Yahweh. He is perfect. He is holy. And He demands perfection from us. He demands moral perfection from us even. So, what, what is our predicament? We are all sinners. We deserve God's wrath. God would not be diminished in His goodness to send every human being there because we really are that evil. Job says, you drink iniquity like water even. How's that for painting a picture? Every human being needs water. We all drink it. And Job says, you drink iniquity like it's your very life source. What are we to do? Well, we can't do anything. We need a Savior. We need, in fact, God Himself to come down and rescue us from Himself. And that's the beauty of Christmas time, the incarnation that we all celebrate, that God Almighty assumed human flesh. The preacher Charles Spurgeon said it like this, the infinite became an infant. That God, the Son, the second person of our triune God, came down and assumed human flesh and lived the life that we could not live. All of God's law, dear ones, He kept perfectly His entire life. And in keeping that law His entire life, He was able to go to the cross of Calvary and die 
for sinners. And in dying for sinners, dear ones, like you and like me, He took the penalty that we deserve as sinners. He took the wrath of God that we deserve as sinners. So that anybody who trusts in Him and trusts in His resurrection from the dead three days later will have their sin forgiven and according to 2 Corinthians 5.21 be given the very righteousness of God as a free gift. So not only is your sin wiped clean, but by trusting in Christ, you dear ones, if you've believed in Christ, you not only have a slate wiped clean of sin, but also dear ones, you have the very righteousness of Jesus given to you. So if anybody's here and they have not or they're realizing in this moment that you have never, ever trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've never partaken of this advancement of the gospel that we'll be talking about, do so tonight. Do so tonight. Flee to Jesus Flee to the one who died for sinners and rose again on behalf of sinners. Place your complete trust in Him and live. That is the gospel that Paul talks about in Philippians. And he is in a Roman prison. Most of the commentators think at this point he's under house arrest. Meaning that as he is writing this, he is chained with the Roman guard on the other side of him. People can come see him at this point. So it's not the the worst of Roman punishments, but it's still not wonderful because he has no freedom. He's chained to a, another person. And back then they didn't have hygiene like they have it now. So he probably stunk and had to, do everything with another pair of eyes watching him. So that is the context in which Paul is writing this letter. And he says that everything that has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Look at the first verse there, verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served To advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So that's the first item he wants you to know. is He is not sulking in his imprisonment. He is not sitting in his imprisonment singing... Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. He he is not sitting in prison just hoping God will let him out because God God needs me. I'm the Apostle Paul. What am I doing sitting here in prison? You know, God saved me to be a missionary to the Gentiles. I don't need to be in prison. I need to be out there doing God's work. But Paul's attitude is not as though God needs him. Look at what the text says. It says that what has happened to me 
has really served, there's emphaticness there, to advance the gospel. And that word advance, if you were to look at a Greek New Testament, that has the idea of military advancement to it. Like it's strategically going along. It's not going along willy-nilly, just wherever it goes, it goes. But it has the idea behind it that there's a general giving marching orders. And that general being God Himself. So you think about great military leaders of the past, like Napoleon or Alexander the Great that conquered and they advanced upon other nations. Well, the Gospel is the greatest advancement of all time and it has the greatest general of all time, if you will, and that is God Himself. Because Paul knows that it's not really up to him, it's up to God. And that's why he has such confidence in this great advancement of the gospel. He says, It has even gotten to the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. Well, what, what does he mean there when he says imperial guard? That might be lost on us. Well, the imperial guard, some commentator says, was, would have been about 9,000 men stationed around in the Roman army. Other commentators, older commentators such as the venerable John Gill said that it even reached up to the highest in the Roman government himself. So regardless of what it was, Paul's very imprisonment was a witness and testimony to even the highest authorities in Rome. It was the greatest of testimonies, even to the highest, to the highest. And he is saying that even of his imprisonment. So, so what does this show to us? That this great God is the one that's in control. Even though he doesn't talk about God's sovereignty explicitly in this text, you can see it written all over implicitly in this text. He says that it has been known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for what? Christ. It is for Christ. Paul is not in prison because he was a delinquent. Paul is not in prison because he broke any laws of the day. Paul is imprisoned for the glory in the name of Christ. And look at what this imprisonment does. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Well, that's quite odd, naturally speaking. If the apostle Paul, which he, he was known at that time as a missionary to the Gentiles, a lot of people would have seen him as the authority in the church, perhaps, along with Peter. It would make sense, naturally speaking, that if one of the greatest leaders got imprisoned, that that would shrink the resolve of all the followers. 
unless you really believe that there's something greater than mere man behind this. That unless you believe that uh, the Apostle Paul is not running the ship, but there's a greater sovereign authority running everything, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Holy Trinity, this God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That if you believe in a God who works in the supernatural and really saves souls, the God of the gospel that I began this sermon with, if you really believe that He is the one behind it, then it doesn't matter who gets imprisoned or martyred, and it doesn't even matter if some of your favorite preachers fall for moral reasons because your hope and your faith is not mere man. Your hope and your trust is in the God of the gospel. And that is what I want us to see. That is, if your faith is really in the gospel, then you will be emboldened as the church is persecuted. You will be emboldened as the church is persecuted. Just like the text says here. That their confidence increases. And their confidence, not just in anything, but look at the text. Their confidence in the Lord increases. And they become bold to speak the word. This very thing that I'm doing right now, they were increased in their boldness of so doing. So I ask you, can you resonate with our brother Paul and what he is writing as we live in a world that is becoming more and more hostile to the message of the gospel and in a country that is increasingly by the day, by the week, by the month, by the year, becoming more and more hostile to the gospel? How is this church's witness being bolstered up? How is this church's witness to trust in the Lord more being strengthened and increased? Secondly, I want us to see that the two evangelists, and this overlaps with the last verse, because the last verse in my first point talks about that these brothers, and it says most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then he's going to go on and talk about two classes of people in the next section. There's two evangelists here. Look look at the text again, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. You see the text there? And notice in this text of Scripture, notice what he's saying. Both preach Jesus as Messiah, but their motives are different. Rivalry and goodwill. Rivalry and goodwill. And he says, the latter do it out of love. 
They do it out of love. Those who do it from goodwill, it's out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. They know that Paul's imprisonment, in other words, is not useless. That it's not meaningless. That God is still going to use the great apostle even in his imprisonment. And they trust that. And they want to link up with their brother in spiritual warfare as they both follow the commands of God. As he directs and marches on with the gospel of Christ in this world. And in so doing, notice that their motivation is love and goodwill. So I ask you, is this church one that is known for preaching and declaring and and speaking the Word of God out of goodwill? Is it known for speaking out of love? I don't know this church that well. I just know your pastor and I've gotten to know your interim pastor over the, the past couple of days and I would venture to say if this church reflects their last pastor and their interim pastor, you would probably fall into one that puts the gospel under the banner of goodwill and love. But I also want to ask you individually, firstly, do you speak of Christ at all? Secondly, when you do so, is it out of genuine love and out of genuine concern for the lost and the building up of this local church, Thurman Baptist Church. And he says next in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me and my imprisonment. So notice the contrast in the motives. So you've got the latter that do it out of goodwill, they do it out of love, and they do it out of understanding, knowing that God is using the Apostle Paul still even in prison. And then you have the former, those who preach out of rivalry, but they're still preaching Christ, the verse says in verse 15. And also they preach out of selfish ambition and they're not sincere. And instead of wanting to link up arms with their brother Paul, what does the text say? That these people apparently, according to Paul, want to afflict him in his imprisonment. Now, if I was the Apostle Paul, and me knowing me, my gut reaction would be to be against those people, to oppose them, because I've worked my tail off, so to speak, for the gospel of Christ, and now I'm being imprisoned, and I have these people that are preaching with the wrong motives. My gut reaction and my sinful heart would be to be against them, dear ones. And I think if you really search your heart, that might be the inclination where you come to as well. But Paul says something differently. He says in verse 18, What then? What then? What are we to make of this? How are we to respond? And what Paul says is countercultural. 
Only that in every way. Don't miss that little phrase. In every way. Whether in pretense or in truth. Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So notice in every way. Then he's got two more contrasting words. Pretense or in truth. Pretense is just this idea to make a claim but not really believe it yourself, not really have your heart into it, but you're preaching the right thing, but you may not believe it. And then to preach it in truth. And that idea has this notion of uh, I am completely sold out for the gospel of Christ. I'm willing to throw everything that this world would see as valuable away for Christ. He is worth it all. He is worth going overseas for. He is worth going to some of the most unreached places in the nation. Not unlike this one. And just giving my all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says well, whether they do it for the right reasons or not. Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Paul's ultimate rejoicing factor is not the motives of the people but it's the message that they preach did you get that Paul is most chiefly concerned with the message preached even more than the motives of the people now don't misunderstand me there are other texts that say that your heart ought to be in line with the message preached. But at the end of the day, if somebody is preaching Christ rightly, Paul is going to rejoice. Is that your heart this morning, dear Thurman Baptist Church? I, I know in some of the camps that I run in theologically, we can tend to be quite critical of others that may not do church services exactly like I do. And, you know, they may speak in weird gibberish that they call tongues. But as long as they're preaching the Christ of this Bible, at the end of the day, I can rejoice. And even if it's very clear that somebody is in it for the money, but they've got the message right, you can believe me, we should take them aside and say, Brother, check your heart. But the beauty is I can call them brother. Now, you may ask yourself, if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, he rails against the Judaizers, the false teachers. Why is that different from this? Well, the Judaizers in Galatia, they were actually tampering with the message of the gospel itself. They were actually swaying away from the message of Christ. And Paul lays the hammer down hard. Now, dear ones, here's what we have to understand is that the message of Christ is worth rejoicing in because it is through the message of Christ that sinners get into heaven. That gospel that I tried to lay out in some detail at the very beginning of this. That ought to 
make you amen in your soul. You don't have to say it out loud because we're in the Baptist church and we just don't do that, do we? But let me tell you something. If there's not an amen within your soul and your heart is not roused by the gospel of Christ, you need to do a heart check and make sure that your heart is still set aflame by the glories of this gospel that is still being advanced to this day. Even in Thurman and even in the Adirondack Mountains, the gospel is being proclaimed by faithful preachers. And here's how I want you all to specifically rejoice in the gospel. I want to hear a year from now, maybe even sooner, from Pastor Taylor that there's a man standing in this pulpit proclaiming this same glorious gospel. I want to hear that there's a man that is willing to to sell everything to move here and proclaim the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ week after week, multiple times a week, and see people converted because Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy. Don't you call a man here that doesn't preach the same gospel that I've preached today and that your interim pastor has preached and the pastor before him and the pastor before him, Lord willing, keep the legacy of gospel preaching going in this local church. Amen. That, that's my main application point because I know you all are looking for a preacher, a pastor, and I just want to encourage you. You know, they don't have to yell at you like I've just done, but they, they need to preach and preach and preach and preach till Christ be formed in you and be willing to sell it all to see other sinners be converted. That is my heart's desire for this local church. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank You for this text. I thank You for the Apostle Paul and his obedience even in Roman house prison. And I pray that this local church would call a man who, who loves your gospel and would love this people well. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.